You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know with lively discussion and occasional audience participation. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Wednesday, March 16th, 2022. This is episode number 237. I'm Susan Sorries, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis' Favorite Grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 28,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today we're talking about, excuse me, a Russian oligarch indicted in campaign finance plot Puerto Rico's saturated market, another recall, which industries drug test workers the most in Sonoma County, and many other nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read. And we'll try to bring you up to the stage, but keep it brief and relevant or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What's your headline today, Rico? Oh, yes. Mine's coming out of News Is My Business out of Puerto Rico. Uh, Puerto Rico cannabis market is saturated and needs immediate freeze to new licenses. It's been five years since the first medical dispensary opened its doors in Puerto Rico in a study commissioned by the Association Association of Members of the Medical Cannabis Industry, um, abbreviated in Spanish as MECOM, revealed the industry generates close to $300 in annual revenue and $65 million in taxes since. However, the same agency also announced the study validated in those same five years an excessive proliferation of clinics throughout the island and the precipitous drop in sales. It was the Act of 42 of 2017 that opened up regulation on medical cannabis in Puerto Rico, and since then, 277 licenses have been granted, mostly in the metropolitan areas, creating market saturation. Uh, Though the industry generated 5,000 direct and indirect jobs, it's been tough on dispensary owners dealing with with the competition. The island has almost 120,000 cannabis patients, and 311 new licenses um, are, license requests are in transit currently. In 2021, 89 of those were granted, increasing the number of dispensaries by 53% alone just last year. Uh, MECOM's uh, study shows that there's 
about 432 patients per dispensary on the island compared to mainland U.S. medical markets averaging uh, 1,898. Uh, economist Gustavo Velez of Intelligencia uh, Economica quoted in the article saying, um, if controls are not established on the number of dispensaries on the island and the renewal of patient licenses is not facilitated, the industry faces a serious systemic risk that could cause the loss of many dispensaries and other components components of the ecosystem. The market already has uh, the characteristics of imbalance on the supply side. Supply uh, has gro- clearly grown faster than demand, driving in the average sale per dispensary to dangerously low levels, preventing acceptable levels of uh, profitability and thus having the potential to affect the industry. Uh, given the challenging scenario, Mikam uh, proposed a list of scenario of necessary measures to be taken to avoid total industry collapse. Those included um, A, freezing new license grants. B, creating an advisory council for cultivation, manufacturing, and retail. Um, C, Development of regional and municipal licensure criteria. And the opening an incentive-based adult use market with subsidies in place for operators to thrive. I'm not sure how quickly any of those proposed solutions would bail out Puerto Rico's currently crowded medical market, but I do agree that a regulated adult use retail lane would offer the most effective uh, relief that they're looking for. First thing that comes to mind, uh, trying to visualize what's going on uh, down there in the oversaturation of far- is the pharmacies in Mexico. If you've ever been to any of the touristy areas down there, like I was last month, um, these pharmacies are stacked on top of each other with nobody but maybe like one or two Americans in there looking for Adderall and Viagra, <laughs> if anything at, uh, at all. So I hope Puerto Rico gets this thing uh, worked out. And um, the adult use market uh, can open up so um, uh, other entrepreneurs can do their thing down there. And you can see the proliferation of uh, brands as well. Uh, but we shall see. Uh, this is Rico Lamit, the dopest dad on the street, represented for State of Cannabis News Hour. I'd love to hear what the rest of the team thinks of this one. I mean, Puerto Rico needs to work a lot on its legislation as well. I mean, they still have the same policy similar to Ohio, where they believe that all cannabis sold is for vaporization. So they actually don't even have pre rolls as a skew because it's assumed that all cannabis, even though you're going to roll it up, is going to get vaporized, which is total fucking stupidity. Wait, Jason, are you saying they don't have edibles? No, they don't have pre-rolls as a skew because all the flour that's sold on the island is for the intent of vaporization, even though everyone is smoking it. Sounds like, like yeah, they need, they need legal retail out there. Um, you know how like a lot of American states, uh, when they go medical first, they don't even offer flour? Seems like the whole... Uh, uh, like the whole island is taking that route. They're just going vaporization. They're going with the extracts, but no flour at all. But everybody like purchasing. No, they have flour. They have flour there. They sell. They sell eighths and ounces and half ounces and everything like that. But they don't sell pre rolls because all the flour is intended to be vaporized, similar to like Ohio. Uh, got it. So, do we think that this really this freeze immediate freeze is actually going to do anything on the saturated market? Um, I mean, if they have 311 licenses, medical licenses in transit, and last year they increased the number of uh, of dispensaries by 53%, like, it probably could help. I don't know. The prices are just like going through the floor out, uh, out there. There's no relief in sight. So maybe. I think we should just let the market work itself out. You know, <laughs> so you're a free market economist, is that what kind of. Yeah, I lean that way. Victoria, did you want to say something? I was just saying, like, 
they were saying, you know, for vaping only, just like New York, they used to sell the flower for vaping only. Just laughing at it. Right, it's totally stupid. I'm going to go vape some flower, guys. <laughs> See how stupid that sounds? Oh. Not everyone can smoke. I will say, like, I, I'm not usually a big vapor, but I lived in an apartment for a while where I couldn't smoke. I mean, we, we did, and then they were like, you can't smoke. We'll kick you out. So then we had to get, like, one of those packs vapor. Like, vaping is not the same. I'm just saying, there might be a time and place for it, even if I don't love it. I don't know why I felt the need to defend that, though. Vaping weed is fucking stupid. It's fucking totally different, totally different effects, totally different high, totally different experiences. I agree with you. I do agree with you. Sounds like a... What makes it lame, Jason? What's that, Rico? What makes it lame? Um, the fact that you don't have the same same type of experiences when you smoke it. If you got the exact same feeling and exact same everything, I'd totally be on board with vaping flour. But the fact that it isn't the same effect and you don't get the same uh, cannabinoids and whatnot in in your system and processed through your body in the same way, it's fucking a trash way of uh, consuming. They like each to, their own. I mean, I there like are people science. who prefer to, to vape for whatever reason. So <clears throat> however you want to consume is okay with me. Vaping should only be done with concentrates. Well, uh, doctors will say that you should, uh, they would say not to smoke a lot. Like as Dr. Felicia had brought up yesterday, it does have a lot of carcinogens and COP, it can cause COPD and other issues. So doctors do recommend vaporizing over smoking or a combusting cannabis, just for the record. That's, that, that's for legal reasons, though, so they they're, they're protect their insurance policies. I'm curious what we've got Linny up from the audience. Uh, she's a cannabis wellness coach. What did you want to say? I just wanted to agree with what was just said that um, vaping flour is one of the healthiest ways to consume. And the effects might not be quite the same. It's more muted, but it is uh, not involve any combustion, so it is healthier. And Jason Beck, the conversation that we had yesterday at Green Street, you guys were telling me how great concentrates were at a low temperature because you get to enjoy the flavor of the terpenes. Yes, I agree with that. That's for vaping is great for concentrates, which I just previously said. But flour should be combusted, and especially all outdoor weed should just get thrown in the fireplace. Oh my god! (laughs) The thoughts and opinions of each correspondent are their own. Yes, they are, Doctor Felicia. (laughs) Thank you for coming to the state. (laughs) Bailing us the fuck out here. Good, good morning, good afternoon. Um, Yeah, I'm have to agree with the last speaker uh, and uh, Liz that combustion um, of any plant material is going to generate toxins. And the wonderful thing about cannabis is that it has lots of more beneficial, helpful cannabinoids to maybe counteract that. But definitely vaporizing cannabis is the safest way to bring it into your lungs, number one. Number two, studies have shown that when you combust the plant, you lose 50% of your product in that combustion. So people who are vaporizing their uh, flower are actually experiencing more of it and experiencing more of the terpenes. So um, I have to totally disagree with Jason. Uh, vaporizing is, is definitely, when you're vaping a flower, safer. And, I de- and that's what I recommend to, my, to pregnant patients, that if you, if you must bring it in through your lungs, um, vaporize it with an electronic vaporizer made for flour. And I'm done speaking. So what you're saying is, um, if you're living life on the wild side, and you take a lot of risks, smoke more weed. But if you want to get on the healthy side of the equation, 
vaporize. Hold on. You can't say that vaporizing is healthy. I mean, technically, like even just breathing in oxygen is unhealthy because of all the free radicals. So let's keep shit 100 in the street. She said healthier. <laughs> let's go to the next. Yes, story. please. Yes, please. <laughs> all right, coming up next. She's a master of divinity, juris doctorate, graduate tax scholar, repping Georgetown Law, focusing on cannabis and psychedelics. This taxivist is working hard to expand safe access, protect religious freedom, and promote social justice in cannabis, psychedelic, and tax laws. You got to respect the fact she stays lit, man. Victoria Littman, what you got for us today? Thanks for that, Rico. You all, you give me like the longest intro. I love it. My news today comes out of New York, and it's something I've been thinking a lot about, um, so I'm really happy to share it. The news is from... Albany Business Review, and the headline says, New Cannabis Cultivation Rules Prompt Questions About New York's Approach to Social Equity. So there's been a lot of what's been touted as progressive good news about social equity and cannabis in New York lately. It's pretty much centered around this legislation that passed that provides for provisional cultivation and processor licenses for hemp growers, and then a proposed regulations that came out last week that would create an early entry for retail licenses to those with prior convictions. Um, in this opinion piece that I'm reporting on, Ruben Lindo, founder of Blackmar Farms LLC and CEO of Phoenix Nutraceutical, writes that new rules New York adopted to jumpstart the cultivation of cannabis are a slap in the face to people of color and minority-owned businesses in New York State who had hoped to have a fair chance to enter the industry. Uh, his focus in this piece is the conditional cannabis cultivation bill, which was signed into law by Governor Kathy Hochul uh, in late February, and it allowed existing hemp growers to apply for provisional licenses. The bill is being praised as first of its kind and a way to prevent the lengthy delays other states experience in their rollouts of adult use markets, but it raises more questions than solutions. The cultivation bill, which was sponsored by Senator Hinchy, passed through the state Senate and Assembly and went onto the governor's desk in just nine days. There was no public comment period or time for those already in the industry to have a conversation about the nuances of cultivating cannabis. So I'm going to read what he wrote because I think he said it well. The cost of standing up a cannabis operation that can withstand New York's climate, as well as create products that rival or compete with products in the existing legacy market, is far from just planting hemp seeds in the ground. If anything, this is a pacifier for the farmers who lost millions growing hemp locally under the state's pilot program. Under the new law, these impacted hemp farmers can grow an acre outdoors 20 or 25,000 feet in a greenhouse as long as they meet certain criteria, which includes providing mentorship to minority farmers, checking the box to make sure that the social equity goals are supported. Um, they also have to have had a successful growing season in the last few years. Sadly, the, the hemp pilot program never modeled the intentions of an equitable market, and it failed to promote social equity in the first place. As of now, New York has approximately 63 hemp farmers, and uh, he says he can count on two hands the number of farmers of color. He, along with many others, fear that this bill will see predominantly white farmers growing cannabis under the guise of social equity. He says, when we talk about the legislative intent of social equity and of the MRTA, the cannabis bill in New York, it was to right the wrongs of the war on drugs and to repair the community most impacted. How does any of the above, i.e., you know, licensing hemp farmers, fit into that spirit? Um, he also mentions the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and paraphrases a section which prohibits excluding black and brown business owners from participating in an industry that allows them to earn income in a fair and competitive marketplace based on contracts, licenses, and institutional reforms. He says that this new bill flies in the face of that. Not only does it fail to address uh, who social equity applies to, it changes the dynamics of what social equity is, and it opens the door for white males, hemp farmers, to come in under a harmed farmer statute and languish to participate in a head start in the New York industry. 
Um, he says, you know, again, it's a slap in the face to people of color and minority-owned businesses, and that if it was truly designed to help jumpstart the projected $2.5 billion recreational cannabis industry by providing initial supply, um, why wouldn't you just license some of the legacy growers? He also has questions about the mentorship program, what it'll look like, what does it mean for a pathway to licensure, um, and ultimately he just says that the Office of Cannabis Management and the legislature need to know that this bill is not a win. Um, it's the makings of an industry that fails to support and embody the intent of the law that was passed. Um, so his focus is the hemp bill. I have similar concerns about the regulations that were proposed last week that would give the first few hundred retail licenses to individuals that had a cannabis conviction. Um, so this preferential license would also require that the person or an immediate family member of someone with a conviction has experience owning and operating a qualifying business in the state of New York. So a qualifying business is not yet defined, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't include legacy market cannabis. So <laughs> there's not a lot of evidence uh, to the contrary, and there's a lot of opinion in the cannabis sphere that first mover advantage in a volatile market like New York will be that has limited supply will not actually contribute to long-term success, but rather maybe setting up these businesses to fail. So I'm not saying we shouldn't try to further social equity. It's really important to me and to this industry. I'm just saying we need to do a better job of actually doing it. So if you see headlines out there that claim that New York is furthering social equity and it's progressive and setting the standard for the whole country, it's important to think about what is the real lived impact of these bills? Who qualifies for these licenses and who needs, who needs to? Um, so in my opinion, unless we're coming up with ways to build a direct bridge from legacy to legal, the legal market is just turning into criminalization 2.0. Um, so that's what I have with you today. I'm Victoria Littman with the State of Cannabis News. Happy to hear any perspectives of my correspondents, especially in other states, um, opinion on what New York is doing and how it's being represented. Um, this is a great story, uh, Victoria. Thank you for uh, covering it. We had a lengthy conversation, a lengthy debate um, about what the, the devil and the details for the New York industry moving forward this week. And we also, get, I think we really need to pay attention to um, what's in these bills, like how it's going to be implemented and so on and so on. But we also need to be very wary of the messengers um, and the people who are fighting against these things, too, because everybody's dirty in this in, in this market. So um, I have my own personal thoughts and uh, business dealings with Ruben Lindo in the past, and I don't think he's a perfect messenger for this type of message. Um, I also don't think that um, Steve D'Angelo would be the perfect messenger for this message either. Um, and that came up in our, in our panel that we did in South by Southwest yesterday too. So um, it's all fucked up. Um, social equity across the board is all fucked up um, in every state. And um, this is just more... Uh, fuel for me just saying over and over and over again, bring on reparations. Social equity is going to be, uh, continue to be a, a divisive um, topic in our industry, and nobody is going to be able to get it right before we have federal legalization. So um, for those of out there thinking that it's going to be some some form of reparations for people in the industry like it's not reparations is reparations so social equity equity is a marketing buzzword. Amen. Um, I just want to know, wait, I want to hear from the guests, but Rico, can we catch that panel somewhere? <laughs> uh, yeah. And um, I actually have it on my YouTube right now. We're actually um, uh, editing it 
today feverishly to get it out to the people. Um, I, I was told by multiple people that the, the uh, audio wasn't that great on the live feed on Instagram, but I think it's uh, still on our well, YouTube. Rico, we'll, we'll put it on the newsletter today, so send yeah, me the information. But uh, Gee wants to weigh in, and then Brandon, and then Gerardo, and then we need to move on because we're over time. Let's go. Yeah, I, you know, Rico, I just wanted to, I, I 100% agree with what you're saying. There is no such thing as social equity. And I think primarily it's because regulators still have cannabis bias. Like, it is criminalization 2.0. We're not, we're legal by force because the people have voted and pushed and advocated to get it done. But regulators are not trying to make this equi equitable. They're trying to cover their butts. And the same system that's held people back is the same system that's regulating us. So it's no surprise that this shit doesn't work. It's not intended to work. The system has always been rigged for a certain group of people, and it still is. So until we fix that, we're not going to have social equity. You know, the, one of the main reasons it doesn't work, Guy, is because of what it actually really is. It's called socialist equity. Uh, <laughs> now, Brandon was next, and then Gerardo. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm skeptical of this. I mean, point... Point us to the market where being the first mover has really been an advantage, an economic one, where those first movers have survived and are the titans of their state. I would, I would posit that no first mover is the titan in their state at this point. And so this is really just, um, this is bullshit social equity. I mean, you're offering a pathway, but the, the proof is already out that a lot of these first movers lose their face and have to sell their business. So... Uh, this, I want, I want a fair and equitable social equity plan, and I want people that have actually been harmed by the war on drugs to have an advantage, not a bullshit perceived advantage that isn't really an advantage. Yes, indeed. Gerardo, go. go. Oh, sure. All right. So in Nevada, we started off with our social equity and lounges was going to be anybody with $10,000. If you could have 10 friends and get $10,000, you would have your permit. That was going to be awesome. Years later, that turned into $200,000 equitable that you need to show, plus all the permit money that you need to have. And our biggest fear right now is going to our CCB and discussing if a minority in our industry makes 10 to $12 an hour, how are they going to show the $200,000 plus that needed? So one thing that they stopped us, we started doing independent lounges, and we took the, the concept from Elks Lounges. And so you can have a private lounge. You could be independent. You just stay low key. You don't sell food. You don't sell product. If you need product, more people are happy to share. But in our in our city of Las Vegas, it's the social equity is such a bad word. We have minorities who turned their back and went after with the money. And so now there's no hope for us to have lounges to have our social equity. But like one of the speakers had said, it's a great marketing tool for for the state and for the government. Wow, man, two two thousand percent markup when it hits market, man. Yeah, it's not something you can really work with. Appreciate that, Gerardo, and I also appreciate the song that you came out in the '80s with my name in it as well. All right, so Jason Beck is up next. He is the cannabis industry's longest continuously running retailer and holder of two advanced degrees in bro science. Some of his favorite worldly things include mink coats, private jets, triggering the libs, and smoking the world's best weed while identifying others as booth. Coming to the stage, my man Jason Beck. What you got for us, my man? Oh, yeah, Rico. That's what I'm talking about. Happy hump day. Today, my story comes out 
of, oh man, this sad, sad state of affairs. I hope everyone gets ready. Where a Russian oligarch indicted it in campaign finance plot to win cannabis licenses in Nevada. That's right. Russian businessman Andrew Murav was charged Monday with violating federal campaign finance laws in 2018, including illegally funneling donations to then-Republican gubernatorial hopeful Adam Laxalt as part of an effort to win a, a adult-use cannabis license in Nevada. Audrey, excuse me, Andre Maruv, a Russian national, attempted to influence the 2018 elections by conspiring to conspiring to push a million dollars of his foreign funds to candidates and campaigns. Damian Williams, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, said in a press release he attempted to corrupt our political system to advance his business interest. Marav is believed to be a to be in Russia and remains at large. Prosecutors said, according to the unsealed uh, indictment, Marav allegedly conspired. With with Florida-based businessman Lev Parnas and Igor Furman, who were associates of Donald Trump's private lawyer and former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani. Parnas was found guilty in October of six counts of campaign finance charges. Laxalt testified at Parnas's trial. He said Parnas appeared eager to provide funds and promised to hold a fundraiser that ultimately never transpired. Furman pleaded guilty to soliciting foreign campaign contributions in September of 2021. Other people named in the charging document include Ukrainian Bourse businessman Andre Kukushlin and American-based David Correa. Kukushlin was convicted of two counts of campaign finance law violations in February. Correa was sentenced to a year in prison for fraud in a different case, and the five are said to have hatched a plot to use a million dollars provided by Mariv to give the U.S. political campaigns to curry favor with candidates who might be able to help Marav and his co-conspirators obtain cannabis licenses. Nevada legalized adult use of cannabis back in 2016, and prosecutors continue are counted on Marav, or excuse me, Prosecutors contend that Marav violated the law prohibiting foreign nationals from donating to federal, state, or local elections. Prosecutors also said Marav, with the aid of the others, sought to hide the source of the donations, also violating campaign finance laws. The funds went to political campaigns in Nevada, Florida, and Texas, and donation promises were also made to campaigns in New York, New Jersey. In September of 2018, Marav traveled to Las Vegas with a group as part of their plan, but he did not attend any political events, the indictment said. Well, I'll tell you what, this is a lot of fucking spice, and we definitely need to get a lot of this corruption out of our industry, and this is just another example of it. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I mean... <laughs> How many Russian oligarchs have their foot in the cannabis industry? Period. You should ask how many Let's how many countries up. have been funded by Russian oligarch money, I think is a better question. All money is dirty money. I can think of at least ten off the top of my head. Oh no, that guy that guy got voted out, Jason. Uh, Biden is president now. Biden is Ooh. not the president. He's a sit in. <laughs> wow. Yeah, he is. <clears throat> We're where does all this money come from? Is it all from fossil fuels? No, it's all. I mean, the Russia has a lot of a lot of exports. They make a lot of artillery. They make a lot of vodka. You know, artillery. It comes from the people. They, they, they keep it from the people. I mean, our dollar bills have um, rapists and slave masters on the back of them. So all money is blood money in some form or some fashion. 
it just so happens like right now oligarchs are the target and um, i think people are gonna be very surprised when they see how many more of the dollars that have been pumped into our system on the legal side and the illegal side uh, that's coming from a lot of these oligarchs i agree i think we've heard in california about whispers about some in grover beach so a while ago so it'll be interesting to see if more continue to come out in the news yes indeed so let's, let's move. Let's keep it moving here. So uh, she's a pot loving PhD, pushing for common sense cannabis policy for everyday people in real life. Outside the box activist, remaining optimistic in the midst of cannabis chaos. Coming to the stage next is Manika Mahajan. What you got for us today? Good morning. Thank you, Rico. Today I'm talking about drug testing data. My headline reads: Feds reveal which industries drug test workers the most and least in a new report, and it's written by Ben Adlin of Marijuana Moment. I supplemented with the BRS news release, which didn't choose to highlight this part of the findings. They, they focused on some, uh, some of the other questions and metrics. But if you dig into the data, you will find that there's good news for cannabis users. Us- U.S. workplaces appear to be drug testing their employees at lower rates over the past 25 years. The Bureau of Labor Statistics, the BLS, released a report last month that was part of a project measuring businesses' responses to the pandemic. BLS hasn't asked employers about drug screening since 1996, so the fresh data in this this report provides insight into how things have changed. The online survey received more than 80,000 responses, sampling from a universe of 10.5 million private sector establishments. Businesses are classified by NAICS code. Government was excluded from the sample set. I'm focusing on two questions for our purposes. One asked about testing for drugs, including alcohol, and the other asked how the pandemic impacted testing, whether reduced or delayed. Uh, And I'm really going to focus kind of on the first one, um, how many establishments are testing for drugs. So here are the key findings from this report. Uh, And I do want to add a side note that it's difficult to compare apples to apples in these data sets because the methodology has changed over time. But here are some highlights anyway. What percentage of establishments reported testing for drugs or alcohol? In 1993, 48.4% of work sites tested for drug use and 23% tested for alcohol use. Drug testing rates were highest in the communications, utilities, and transportation sectors, closely followed by construction and mining. In 1996, about 30% tested for drugs and about 14% tested for alcohol. And in 2021, 16.1% tested for drugs and or alcohol. Transportation and warehousing, which includes the federally regulated trucking industry and utilities, were more likely to test. Hospitality and entertainment were least likely. Establishment, here's another interesting finding. Establishments in states with legal cannabis were less likely to test. Of the 10 states with the lowest testing, eight have legalized cannabis for adult use. On the other hand, of the 10 states with the highest drug screening rates, not one has legalized cannabis. Some possible explanations for this are that uh, legalization caused employers to to change drug testing policies. It's also possible that attitudes regarding personal freedom, privacy, or drug use outside of work hours could be driving this, uh, these changes in drug testing rates. And other reasons include attracting talent in response to labor shortages, I'd be curious in the comments portion what other explanations uh, you might be aware of. 
And also remember, Amazon last year dropped cannabis screenings for any positions not regulated by the Department of Transportation, which uh, continues to have a a, a strong impact on who gets out of drug testing and who continues to be tested for drugs. So the implications and takeaways from this research, it shows that the pendulum is swinging back away from drug testing as we see changes in laws, attitudes towards cannabis, and availability of research on cannabis. And on a related side note, uh, city leaders in Springfield, Illinois, last night voted to allow firefighters to use cannabis as long as it's at least 36 hours before their shift. That clause shows up in their contracts. And during that meeting, some speakers objected, saying that first responders should be held to a higher standard. I would say, and and that's kind of the case that um, that various industries that have higher testing rates, they see that that case being made that certain industries, um, uh, any kind of cannabis use, whether it's off-duty or not, is is somehow um, a conflict or, or undermines the worker's ability to do their job. But I would say that first responders are already had, held to a higher standard, and they should be allowed to access plant medicine as much as anyone else in that state. Same goes for government. Uh, government employees and really any employee, the, the higher standard of uh, performance should really relate to a person's job functions. And uh, if you recall, yesterday we talked about corruption on this show. So I'd rather see employees held accountable to standards pertaining to their duties above all and let them have whatever they want inside their medicine cabinets. This is Menika Mahajan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Thank you, Menica. That was really good. Uh, the the firefighter thing, the 36 hours was weird to me. It's like, why do you even put things like that in there? How could you even tell if it was more than 36 hours ago? Right. For insurance purposes. And that way they can say that they have plausible deniability and that if they did something, then that way they can say they didn't, they, they did it against the protocols that were put in place. Ah, Okay. All but right. yeah, but it just shows you that the system is broken because it is for insurance purposes. But moreover, there's no suggestion of even, even a higher standard suggests that cannabis is less than because the same restrictions are not put on alcohol, which is far more dangerous. I don't want my first responder to be hung over or drunk. Or what about opioids? Or what about prescription uh, mental drugs like Xanax? And what about Ambien? What is he sleepwalking? So there's a ton of other drugs that affect people's performance that somehow don't make them less than. But cannabis, a natural plant-based medicine, makes you less than might drop on that dude that's it's it's all again the same system that is rigged against us is still in place so there's no surprise that all these articles leave a big question mark in our minds and, and i agree with you Guy. um i think the issue is going to come down to impairment we really have to work on finding a way to do a test for impairment that can be used everywhere because that's that's what it comes down to you're never going to get a test that, that tests people's impairment at the point of sight they're always going to want to have some type of antiquated thing that proves that they were fucking smoked 30 hours ago when they're fucking not even high anymore never say never jason i'm sorry to cut this oh sorry mary's up mary real quickly we're over time Yeah, there's two different ways that they're going to be testing a little bit more for acute toxicity or acute uh, intoxication. There's a blood flow machine that's that's going into human testing that looks at the way the blood is flowing in the brain uh, that changes with acute cannabis use. And there's also some apps that test for intoxication. There's one called Druid, D-R-U-I-D, that uh, may prove to be helpful in these types of settings. Yeah, I've done one of those apps. It's really fun. Um, we are going to quickly relight the room. 
You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker in State of Cannabis or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's hill and straight out of what may or may not be the longest of all beaches here in California. Our next correspondent the CEO of Fruit Slabs, a cannabis and intellectual property attorney, and has a beard known for setting the vibe in a multitude of environments. Up next is Brandon Dorsky. What you got for us today, my man? Thanks for having me. Today, uh, I am talking about a column I authored for the Fruit Slabs blog about uh, famous names in cannabis legal news, and it includes my opinion on the matter. A stint as a fuckboy on Real Housewives could not stop Reed Dreischer from trying to get more undeserving cash for his pocket. That's right. The husband of Real Housewives of New York's Aviva Dreischer, investment banker Reed Dreischer, may find himself in a courtroom soon to explain why the seemingly high society deep pocket could not produce the $5.4 million he pledged to pay. On March 15, 2022, PNS Ventures LLC sued Reed Dreischer and his family of companies, Cape One Management, Gateway Privileged Fund, Hudsey Harver, and Spencer Clark, claiming Dreischer lied when he touted to have enough money to buy out a co-founder and relationships with celebrities that would propel the cannabis business to the next level. The complaint asserted counts of fraudulent inducement, breach of contract, and breach of fiduciary duties, and contends that Aviva was blowing smoke and that the money was never all there as Aviva had represented. As a result of Dreiser's representations, PNS did not pursue other potential investor or capital sources, which left PNS in a crippled economic position and having to go into receivership. PNS alleges Gateway and Dreiser were in default, quote, before the ink on the party's contracts were even dry. According to inside sources, defaults began as early as the second scheduled payment, and the defendant's default led PNS into a receivership that lasted just under two years and from which they only recently emerged. As a result of the lack of funds and being in receivership, PNS lost out on valuable license opportunities and deals to acquire or work with brands. Defendants' access to celebrity power, much like the promised funds, allegedly fell short of the representations that were made, perhaps because it was really the ladies in his life that were the plug. Fran Dreischer's his cousin, Aviva Dreischer from Real Housewives is his wife. Only $1.3 million of the promised 5.4 had actually been received as the time of the filing of the complaint. And the complaint alleges, upon coming out of the receivership, Dreischer actually tried to block a new investor from funding the deficit created by his default by refusing to grant approval unless his company's capital contributions were returned, amongst other demands that included him getting more ownership and control. The complaint seeks to have the agreement between the parties rescinded, in addition to damages and attorney's fees. Elsewhere in New York, a parallel state case was filed against the heir to the Wrigley's gum fortune, William Bo Wrigley Jr., in connection with a fraud related to the parallel spec. Both suits were initially reported on by Law 360, and you can find some more detail there behind a paywall. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for Cannabis News Hour. Thank you, Brandon, for freeing up the news for the people. My pleasure. This one was a hot one, and sounds like Reed really did some people dirty. We've had some really juicy stories lately on this inside stuff. I feel like there could be a whole expose on these internal stories in the cannabis industry. Shit is a tinderbox, man. It's going to fall. It's going to fall the fuck apart. Just saying. 
Good. Burn it down and start over. Nothing. No growth like new growth. All right. So our next correspondent is an educator, brand strategist, healthcare consultant, founder of the Cannabis Business Council of Santa Barbara County. And I know it's still Women's History Month, but I'm still proud to say she is our pinup girl. Up next is Liz Rogan. What you got for us today, Liz? Good morning. Thank you, Rico. Uh, Good day, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My story today comes from Westerberg by Thomas Mitchell. The headline reads, Marijuana from Livewell Recalled Over Mold and Yeast Concerns. So founded in 2009, Livewell is one of Colorado's largest dispensary chains, and they are vertically integrated. They were acquired by Pharmacan Incorporated with a deal closing in February. On Friday, March 11th, the Marijuana Enforcement Division, which is abbreviated as MED, and the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment sent out a health and safety notice saying that some of the recreational cannabis plant materials sold by LiveWell contained mold and yeast levels that were above the state limits. The recalled strain, Gelato Cake, was sold in prepackaged half ounces at LiveWell's recreational dispensaries. The health and safety notice said that consumers who have had affected products in their possession should destroy them or return them to the retail store for proper disposal. Consumers who experienced adverse effects from the consuming the product should seek medical attention and report the event to the Marijuana Enforcement Division by submitting the med reporting form. All of the recalled gelato cake has the cultivation license number um, listed here in the article you can see. So you can check that yourself just in case you're there. And it's also printed on the packaging. But essentially, they say that Livewell says the customer's inquiry inspired the investigation leading to the recall. And the company encouraged other customers to reach out. In their statement, Livewell Enlightened Health is committed to delivering exceptional cannabis products to our customers. And we care deeply about the purity of our products. As such, we have strict production policies at our facilities to ensure that the products we need make, meet the quality assurance testing standards required by Colorado law. While we serve thousands of patients and consumers every day, complaints are very rare. In January of this year, we received a customer inquiry about a small batch of cannabis flour. We immediately pulled the entire batch from which this originated and self-reported the incident to the med division, according to Chris Mapleson, who's the VP of Marketing for Live Well Enlightened Health. He also said molds and other natural organisms are an inherent factor in the production and storage of agricultural products like cannabis. Everything we grow and make is tested by state-licensed independent laboratories to ensure our products meet the standards met by the MED for contaminants, including mold and other microorganisms, before they can be shipped to dispensaries and sold to customers. He said, we work with regulators and other key stakeholders to evaluate cannabis testing standards to ensure all of our customers and medical cannabis patients are receiving products free from unsafe mold and other contaminants. Once the product leaves our retail store, we strongly encourage our customers to store their products properly to ensure freshness and purity. And the statement ends with saying that Live Well Health Enlightened Health stands behind the quality and safety of their products and encourage customers to reach out to them with any uh, concerns at info at livewellhealth.com or livewell.com. The uh, info is here in the pinned link above. You can find it. So in Colorado, it is the responsibility of the business owner to make sure that all testing requirements are met. So the department, um, the med department issues recalls after an additional review process prompted by tips and routine inspections verified the potential contamination. So cannabis is an agricultural product, as we're all aware. It's tested in batches, at least in California, of 50 pounds, and they're testing one gram of the flour. So it is very easy for this to slip through. Unfortunately, you know, you can um, go, you can bypass that if you are using extra quality controls with people examining product, but this is going to happen. We all know that. And 
I'm glad personally that Live Well has taken, you know, has gone ahead and recalled it and taken ownership. I'm very curious about how it kind of, which lab it went through in the beginning that, that passed the testing. But again, it's very, you know, understandable how this could happen, seeing that this is a huge batch of cannabis and an agricultural product. So this is Liz Rogan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Would love to hear anyone's feedback or insight on this. Just a whole bunch more booth, Liz. It's unfortunate that it slipped through, but however it got caught on the other end is is what's important. I feel like it's like every other week we're hearing more and more of these like MSOs, these giant producers that are doing mold recalls. They can't control the uh, the environment that they're trying to build in, and uh, it, I, I think it just points to just inexperience in certain markets and certain um, uh, climate zones, and um, being able to con- control the supply chain. It's all fucked up. I guess it's a good thing, Rico, that we don't uh, test our food in the same ways that we test our cannabis because otherwise we'd have major gluts in the supply chain and probably no one would ever get to eat. Who would have thought, right? <laughs> it makes you wonder if you should um, like look at craft uh, cultivators more if they're growing on smaller batches that they would catch this. You know, you think, right? To like this argument that these, I don't know. Like the MSOs, if they scale up and they can sell cheaper weed, but if it's boof and it's moldy and yeasty because they can't over, you know, I was thinking the same thing, Liz, that this might actually be good for craft cannabis. Yeah, this is good for craft cannabis. And we do test our food, uh, Jason. It's just that the we, chemicals are being ignored. That we, are do not, we do not test our food at all like what we test our cannabis. You cannot even compare the two. I respectfully disagree. Well, we've got Reverend Hooman up from the audience. Reverend, what do, what do you think? Hey, call me Rev. It's not that serious. Sorry. <laughs> okay, Rev. Rev it up. <laughs> well, I come from the uh, fungi world, and uh, I can I really deal with uh, keeping things sterile. It's very, very damn near next to impossible to keep all this fungi out of the food supply especially when you're dealing with gummies, which everybody's obsessed with. Um, It's full of water, and, you know, if you don't have your acid levels right, you get mold growth. It's just so easy to do. And, of course, we know about moisture and bud. I mean, it's like, you know, exactly. It's like climate control. That's very expensive. With If you're in Miami and you have an indoor grow, holy cow, add AC to all of that. So, yeah, it's a, it's amazing that we are as healthy as we are with the existing supply chain, especially in cannabis, the, the way it is. So thank you guys for what you do. I'm learning a lot. Awesome. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's keep. So up next, she's an attorney at law focusing on cannabis, entertainment, and psychedelics. And she's also the founder of Cannabis Blog and Podcast, Shall We Talk? Shalina Panu, what you got for us today? Thank you so much, Rico. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shalina, and my headline for today is Canadians want higher purchase limits for cannabis drinks. Currently, a person in Canada can possess up to 30 grams of dried cannabis in public, but only allowed 2.1 liters, which is 71 ounces of cannabis-infused beverages. This equates to roughly five standard-sized beverage cans. However, apparently that ratio equivalency was a mistake. Now Canada's federal government is asking for the public's opinion regarding their proposed regulations that, and I quote, would correct an unintended consequence of the current equivalency, which restricts the possession and sale of beverages to a greater extent than other forms of cannabis, unquote. 
The proposed regulation would effectively increase the amount of beverage cannabis possession limit in public to 17.1 liters, which is roughly 48 standard size beverage cans. What's interesting to note is that the proposed new rules would not increase the maximum limit of 10 milligrams of THC per container. Out here in the West Coast, 10 milligrams is seen as a joke to heavy cannabis consumers and find it difficult to see that amount even as a microdose. The feedback from the large cannabis companies who foresee the potential of cannabis beverages praised these changes while others were a bit skeptical. The Cannabis Council of Canada, which represents licensed producers, embraced the changes, saying they were timely and consequential. They further stated that it eliminates the distortion and allows more opportunity for adult Canadian cannabis consumers to test out multiple cannabis beverages. Some, however, state that these changes are only a small step since beverages in the Canadian market make up less than 2% of total legal cannabis consumed within Canada. This is in great comparison to the U.S. market where beverages are actually leading this trend. Beverages in the Canadian market amounted to only $39.3 million, which is not that large compared to the overall half a billion dollar annual market of cannabis in Canada. So I broke down the quarterly um, cannabis beverage sales in Canada. Uh, for the first quarter, they got $10.9 million. Second quarter was $12.7 million. And then third quarter was $15.7 million. Although beverage sales are slightly increasing by roughly 2 to $3 million each quarter, Health Canada doesn't necessarily believe that the pr- proposed changes will lead to consumers buying more cannabis beverages. However, they don't rule out this possibility. Industry statistics show that beer sales strikingly declined in 2019 in Canadian provinces where there was a large amount of cannabis retail stores. They aren't sure if the decline is because of cannabis specifically, however, they believe it is likely a factor. An economics professor at University of Waterloo states that in social settings, it may take longer than a decade for cannabis to start making its mark, largely due to the lack of knowledge around cannabis and its poor perception in society. Proper cannabis education is the key takeaway for cannabis companies and consumers to use at their disposal in order to effectively change not only society, but also the market. What are your thoughts on these proposed regulations? My name is Shalina, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I was putting some uh, Hi-Fi Hops beverages in the refrigerator at Green Street yesterday. They were just sitting there on the counter, and I thought people would want to have them cold. And I noticed that some of them were 2.5 milligrams what's the point it's such a joke how small that is i mean for some people that non-users they feel like that's a lot that's what well but the percentage of you know the the testing they could be off by two and a half percent and that that's the wiggle room and there could be actually nothing in it well i think that a lot of it too is why a lot of these uh beverage can uh consumer or companies make these small amounts so then that way People can consume a whole six pack, or can consume a whole twelve pack in one city. Right, but how much? How much money would that cost? They're like ten dollars a piece, right? They're not that expensive. The other thing you have to look at is the average threshold of psychoactivity is two point five milligrams of THC. So they have to start with like the lowest possible denomination to make it safe for people. Unfortunately, it's always perplexed me when people say, "Oh, yeah, I'm into microdosing cannabis." I do two and a half, three milligrams of this and three, two and a half, three milligrams of that. Like, you're not doing shit. <laughs> I, st- I stopped talking to people and can never take them seriously when they tell me shit like that. <laughs> okay, we need to keep moving because I really want to hear from Guy and Christopher. Yes, yes indeed. Up, up next, he's an OG dope dad known and respected throughout the industry as a steadfast depend- defender of cannabis culture and perpetual bridger of gaps. Always first step up and defend legacy operators. The co-founder and now CEO of Pop and Barkley is up next. Guy Rocourt, what you got for us, my man? Good morning, Rico. 
Good morning, Susan. Thanks, team. Uh, yeah, this morning, uh, this article is coming out of the Herald Dispatch. It says, Bill limiting number of medical cannabis testing labs in West Virginia fails. Um, essentially, what you have here is a situation where they tried to pass a bill that would have limited the state's uh, licensed labs to two people, two, two license permits, right, for the entire state of West Virginia. Um, uh, right at the last hour, the... Um, West Virginia Medical Cannabis Act was adjusted, taking that limit off. As you can imagine, one of the labs quoted in the article that invested a million dollars is up in arms because their perspective is that last October, the article quotes that they took in 216 samples, but they have the capacity for 80 to 100 per week. And if there are more than two labs, that it'll just be a race to the bottom of quality. Um, I, I think there's also this uh, implication in the article. It's not clear that somehow Pennsylvania labs are also in the same program. So they cited the labs in Pennsylvania, meaning a total of five labs that would be active, would be sharing in these 200 samples. This article is not too deep. But what I think is happening here is, again, that classic case of like, oh, I have money. I am not a plant touching business, so I've been able to operate, raise money, and not deal with the cannabis shame. And now I use that money to push legislators to get something to happen, and it didn't go my way. And now I'm pissed because my initial investment is not going to pay off the way it should. I love labs. I think we need them. I think we need more testing. However, I am not as sympathetic to what I call pick and shovel sales folks because support industries that don't touch the plant, that don't get mired down by 280E the way we do, I'm usually skeptical of. Now, cannabis labs do touch cannabis, obviously. They do have to get licensed. Some of them even have to get licensed by the DEA. I'm not disputing that they have serious overhead. However, I just don't think that this is where, you know, the folks in West Virginia should be dropping anchor. I think there should be more labs. So I do agree with the chamber in making that switch. I don't think that privileged licenship is the way. I think that the state should make quality standards that labs adhere to. And if they fall off because they can't stay in business, that's how they fall off. But by and large, not a lot in this article. I'm just happy to know that West Virginia a southern state has a medical program, is testing, and at least rolling out these programs. So that's a win. I'm Guy Court reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Guy, yeah, I think you hit it right on the head right there. Um, we need to standardize across the board those labs, and they need to be held accountable. Um, if there's anything, these states need to put more money into lab testing and education rather than enforcement, which clearly isn't working. I agree, Rico. And Gee, I feel like I need to play the church music whenever you speak. I love your opinions. Kind <laughs> of preach. I think we're just going to continue seeing a lot of this lab testing uh, kind of snafu kerfuffle going on until they make more standardized things. Because it's like, how many stories are we having in the news each week about this? So when are they going to actually make state standards? And are we going to have to wait till federal legalization or no? Do people test alcohol? Like, I'm just wondering long-term if we think there's going to be testing for all adult use or just for medical, because I think that's a relevant consideration. I agree. So um, coming up next and bringing us home, some know him as the communications strategist and publisher of the American Cannabis Report, but those who know his big secret call him the Clark Kent of cannabis. Coming up and bringing us home is Christopher Smith. What you got for us this morning, my man? Good morning, Rico. Thank you so much. And good morning, Susan. Good morning, everyone. Um, uh, Switch stories, actually, if 
I don't know what you guys are loading up, but uh, I'm going to go with this one. Um, the uh, it's, It comes from Cannabis Now, and remarkably, this comes from 2022 current story in Cannabis Now, an industry publication, Our State's Redlining Cannabis Dispensaries. So I have to issue a trigger warning. If you have a problem with racist reefer madness propaganda, you might want to take a break right now because this article is going to catch your hair on fire. The article leads with this. Urban decay in America speaks a universal language, a vernacular seen and heard in movies, political ads, and in real life. It sounds like this. Broken windows, vacant buildings, graffiti-covered walls and doors, 'er ne'er-do-wells loitering outside liquor stores, and pornography merchants. I can't even say it. It's so horrible. Pornography merchants. I swear to God, Cannabis Now actually printed that, pornography merchants. But thanks to cannabis legalization, the quote goes on, struggling areas in America have another feature, legal cannabis dispensaries. The high concentration of dispensaries in America's lower income areas may be due to the destructive practice of redlining. According to recent research out of Washington and published in the Journal of Drug and Alcohol Dependence, something I don't read, uh, along with other elements polite society may deem unsavory, cannabis dispensaries also tend to coalesce in lower income areas, which in turn, since race so often correlates with class, also tend to be less white. All right, look, I have to stop. I can't stand this recent stuff. It's so hardcore to read. Um, As soon as this session is over, I'm going to write to cannabis now and give them a piece of my mind for aiding and abetting our enemies. Shame on them for providing this shit. I can't believe their editors allowed it. I can't believe they've already forgotten one of the keystones of the racist and fear-based foundation of cannabis prohibition, that cannabis is used by jazz musicians and causes uncontrollable sexuality, which will encourage our wives and daughters to sleep with them. It's unbelievable. It still exists. So let's just say that cannabis retail businesses tend to locate in lower income parts of town. Let's just say. Why would that be? Real estate is less expensive, and cannabis businesses are largely startups or early-stage companies that are in a very competitive industry where expenses are critical. This is simply good business. But let's look at another, an author, Richard Florida, author of the seminal work on urban development called The Rise of the Creative Class. He states clearly that downtrodden areas of great cities have been rediscovered and economically reinvigorated by a similar and predictable process. First, gay people move into a downtrodden neighborhood. Then, artists and other creatives get the idea and start to move in. And finally, when this formerly downtrodden part of town is recognized as cool, investors come and the redevelopment is complete. So I'm not saying that gentrification is kind or fair, but if it seems to hold true, and if so, then cannabis business are part of the vanguard and part of the creative class. They bring jobs and businesses that grow up to support employees uh, around them. They bring customers and cash, who, people who stay in the neighborhood and shop at other stores. They bring bodies and eyeballs, which increases security and reduces crime, and eventually new investment in economic resources. We are in the vanguard. We are in the front. We are on the tip of the sphere. Congratulations to us. Thank you so much, Christopher. You do an amazing job every time. Uh, That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay on Clubhouse or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. Big thank you to Rico for co-producing the show and our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. 
And thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say goodbye, Rico. Goodbye.